Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Rebecca Bannon, Senior Investment Consultant at Willis Towers Watson. This conversation will talk about the role of the Investment Committee, the right questions to ask, and how the Investment Committee changes with the different types of investment models. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So I think the first question to start off with today is, why are we talking about the role of Investment Committee? Isn't this something that we've already done multiple times before? If we think about this and break it down, life was already challenging for investment committees, kind of the, the weight that sat on their shoulders was already pretty significant. And over the last six months, you know, the stakes have only got higher and we don't know what's coming over the hill. It could get even even worse from here. And, you know, we're working in a new virtual world. So challenges to ICs ha- have never really been higher than they are right now. And, can I see set their stakes higher? Well, you know, absolutely they can. And in some instances, we think that some ICs are not operating quite as efficiently as they could. And in fact, over the last six months, haven't really been able to do all the things that they wanted to do. And in part, that's because of efficiency, but a part it's because they're just trying to do too much. So when you say that they're trying to do too much, is it because there's just too many moving pieces or there's too much noise in the system? There's too many regulatory changes? What's driving this this situation where there's there's too many things happening for them? Well, you've touched on a number of, of things there. So one, I think it's more items needing to be on the agenda than ever. So, you know, we are in a situation where there's so much information, there's so much uncertainty, there's so many decisions that can be made and so many items that need consideration. But also it's because ICs are trying to make too many of those decisions themselves. And rather than taking a kind of a thinking or challenging role, because the stakes are so high, they think they need to make all of the decisions for themselves rather than to kind of trust that decision making to other parties, either their internal teams or their external providers. So is it really just this lack of willingness to pass on decisions and there's a bit of micromanaging that's happening in the IC? Is that part of the problem? It's probably an element of the problem, but if you kind of think about what's required to have someone make a decision on your behalf, you need to have a lot of trust in those people. You need to really trust that they're going to make good quality decisions on your behalf. And you need to believe that they have the talent and ability to do so. Without that, how can an IC in their fiduciary duty actually delegate decision making? And also without being very clear to that external party what good looks like, how can an IC ensure that they're doing a good job? Is this part of, you think, maybe the growing pains of the industry? Is it still in the early phases? A lot of the initial industry funds were a sort of a trustee-driven model. Everything was a outsourced CIO-style model, and now they're becoming much more sophisticated in how they look at things, and therefore the IC committee and structure and the work that gets done in the IC isn't really moved along with, with how these funds have grown in sophistication. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a great point, and and absolutely. So if we kind of take a step back and think about what this model might have looked like, sort of a decade or so ago, is exactly as you said. You had an OCIO type situation. The IC owned the SAA and largely kind of left it to external providers. Fast forward a few years and we have huge internal teams. The realms of the investable have completely shifted. And what is required from oversight for an IC has just grown hugely. But what hasn't changed as meaningfully is, is the time commitment. And it's still a regular meetings for a few hours, maybe at most once a month. Whereas these portfolios are moving on a, on a daily basis and the number of decisions that they're required to oversee and endorse has just grown exponentially. And is this also partly because some of these funds are insourcing a lot of their funds management? Is that also a reason for this change or is it just one of a many series of components of this complexity that you talk about? I think it's one of many components, but it's a really, really critical one because Often the responsibility seems to fall to ICs to ensure that internal teams are doing a good job. So if you imagine that you already had all these external providers to see over, now you have to ensure that the internal team that you've put in place to run the internal portfolio is as good as the external providers and and ensure that all of the decisions they've made are of high quality. And in order to do that, properly. It's a really big commitment of time. And the risks are so much higher when you're doing it yourself, because you can't, it's not as easy just to walk away from an internal team, as it is to kind of say to an external manager, sorry, you're not investing in line with your parameters or or what we think good looks like. So we're going to go in a different direction. Maybe let's take it back to the start in terms of what then is the primary role of the IC? What do you see as the key components that they should be focused on? I think it has three elements to it. So the first is really around ensuring that high quality investment decisions are being made, that they're aligned with the needs of members and beneficiaries, and that they lead to strong, good and aligned outcomes. And you'll notice that not a single element of that relates to the IC having to make decisions. It's all about ensuring that decisions, either made by them or on their behalf, are good ones. Is the role then of the IC to really be a governance check? Is the IC's role to ensure that the SAA is being implemented to what it should be? Yeah, so I think the role of an IC should really be ensuring that everything that's put forward and everything that is agreed keeps its strategic focus on what will add value for beneficiaries. And rather than that being the IC owns all of the decisions, it it should really be focusing on acting as a sounding board to the investment teams or external providers' ideas and making interventions periodically when required and, and kind of challenging and saying, well, that's a way of doing it, but also have you considered this other way or catalyst for new thinking? And ultimately, holding those teams and those providers to account and trying to get the best out of them. When you're talking about holding people to account, it's almost this governance oversight. The next thing in terms of the IC is the composition of these ICs, right? Because 
Ultimately, mm-hmm. if you want to have a situation where they are a sounding board and they're challenging decisions, what's the best way then for these ICs to be constructed in terms of the, the makeup of people? Do you need people that are trustees? Do you need people that are really investment professionals, manager research people? You know, how do you bring that, that team together? I think really in this space, what we're seeking is diversity of thought, strong capabilities that in total drive to a greater collective intelligence than the individuals on their own. So I kind of break that down into kind of what are the critical elements to ensure that that happens. And so the first is that the IC isn't too big. If you have too many people on an IC, it's almost impossible to kind of really get that diverse thinking but unified decisions because there's just too many people in the room for everyone to have their say and for kind of effective debate to take place. And you need to ensure that there is that diversity of thinking. If if everyone in the room kind of thinks and operates in the same way, then all you're going to do is get people kind of reinforcing the same thinking. And really what we're trying to do is kind of challenge the parameters and, and, you know, challenge the way that things are being done to ensure that it is it is the best. And finally, you do need strong capabilities. You need people on an IC that do have an investment background and more importantly, have a diverse investment background. So don't just sort of specialize in only one particular asset class and everyone on the IC has the same experience, but are able to kind of take approach different considerations in different ways to come at it either laterally or differently to one another and um, to understand kind of what all the different scenarios are, what all the different paths are and um, to facilitate better decision-making. There's always a very fine line between having a challenged environment where people are criticizing and you know, really trying to push the envelope on decisions, but at the same time, make sure that the team still works. I think that's one of the the real challenges from an you know, from an IC perspective is how to bring the right group of people that they are constantly willing to challenge and and get to better decisions but at the same time still be a workable group. Yeah, absolutely. And this is why culture just becomes so important. So it's really important to have a culture that allows for psychological safety and really encourages IC member participation and active challenge and debate. I mean, in this situation, you're looking for people who are going to challenge because that is how innovation occurs. And, you know, we see continuous improvement. If if everyone just sort of nods along and agrees and goes with the status quo, opportunities for betterment slip through the gaps. And I think also what's so important from a cultural perspective is that it isn't just that the IC work well together, but, you know, that there is this culture of cooperation between the IC and the executive or the external parties. Because, you know, again, collectively through engagement with either the executive or providers, that's how you all raise your game together. And it's how you get the most out of the people that you're effectively paying for. One of the things that I'm curious to get your thoughts about is obviously this COVID-19 environment has changed the way these ICs are actually being held. And, mm-hmm. you know, is there now a potential problem with these virtual IC committees that are potentially being a negative on the ability to make these decisions or people to express themselves freely? Or is it potentially a benefit? 
So I, I think it's a change. And with change, there's an opportunity for it to be an improvement. But also if you don't change with the change, it, it becomes a negative. And working virtually does bring its benefits, which I'll touch upon in a moment. But it really can exacerbate underlying inefficiencies or issues. So if you already had a problem on the IC with getting challenge and getting participation and engagement, moving to a virtual setting is only going to make that worse unless mechanisms are put in place um, to manage them and ensure that decision-making does remain effective. So something that we've experienced even just internally at my organisation as part of COVID is we get an opportunity to talk to people that we never got to speak to. It doesn't matter if you know a fund manager is in New York or Hong Kong or Sydney, you know, they're just as close to us as if they were down the road. And the rise of technology, the rise of the VC platform and, and all these kind of interactive and engaging voting type software, it means that you can engage and, and you can take benefits from this and you can actually promote participation but only if you take the proactive steps to do so. It's an interesting one, I guess, maybe in terms of investment committees being broader potentially as well. Like you don't have to have everyone meeting at a location. Now you can expand your IC to having a more global IC. Absolutely. And also you could argue it should mean that your ICs can meet more regularly. I mean, I know multiple members on ICs that I work with or have been a part of, they fly in. It's an entire day. It's sort of a lot of travel. It's a real sort of event when everyone comes together. And you don't see so much of the um, exceptional meetings or the smaller working groups, et cetera, spun off. And in a virtual world, all of that should be possible. It should be quite easy to jump on for an hour because everyone's in the same boat. It then raises the the broader question that we started with, which is information overload. In this virtual world, you can get so much more information. You can communicate so much more now. You've got so many opportunities to communicate. How do you make sure, yet again, that you find the right decisions that are worthwhile for the IC to make? Yeah, and I think that this is a, a major challenge that ICs have been facing over the last few months. What with global pandemic and markets crashing kind of all at the same time, so much information coming at us and so many you know potential paths in front of us, you can almost end up in a situation where you have so much information, you feel paralyzed in making any, any decisions. And again, I'll kind of go back to what we've talked about before on, you know, trusting the experts that you've put in place to manage your investments, to provide potential solutions to you. It isn't the IC's responsibility necessarily to shift through all of this information and work out what they should do. You know, I'd really encourage ICs, like you use your advisors, use your managers and understand what they think the solutions are in front of you. So you end up kind of weighing up between implementable, actionable items rather than just trying to shift through tons of data that may or may not be useful. The point there you make about actionable items is a really interesting one. So who should then be driving that? Should that be coming then from the investment team and pushing up clear decisions that they want the IC to help them with? In my view, absolutely. Particularly if you have an internal investment team, they should be all over there, 100% of their job is about thinking about the portfolio and thinking about members or underlying clients and about what they need and how they can best position 
their investment arrangements to deal with the current environment. Now, as much as, as IC members can think about that too, and absolutely should, the role of the internal team during times like this just becomes absolutely critical and actually a comparative advantage to these large organizations because they're able to be more dynamic. They're able to capitalize on opportunities during challenge, which is something that if ICs are only meeting once a quarter and the only decision makers, some of those opportunities are falling through the gaps. So then it comes back to what is the right information that should go to the IC and also how is it presented rather than reams and reams of paper and large reports that are hard to read for them. What specifically are you looking for guidance on? Absolutely. And in my view, papers to the IC should be as short and sharp as possible and remain very strategic. We often see 100, 200 page IC decks I mean, and it's almost impossible for someone to be over all of that information. A foundational element that we think is very important is to link everything back to mission and goals and vision and beliefs. Everything you do, every decision that you endorse, you should be able to point to and say, this represents the way that we think about investment portfolios. I wanted to go back also and talk about the investment model. We've seen a lot of the the funds now moving away from the strategic asset allocation to more of a total Mm. portfolio approach. How does that change then the way the IC maybe is composed? Yeah, and I think TPA is an excellent manifestation of ICs focusing on value add and strategic elements. Um, Because in a TPA, you're really saying... As an IC, I don't need to sign off on an SAA. I don't even need to see necessarily an SAA. I need to set a set of strategic parameters, you know, that relate to risk and constraints and things that I'm comfortable with. And then I'm going to trust that my internal team or my external OCIO provider has the skills and capabilities to implement something on my behalf. So, you know, I really like to think about SAA and TPA through a menu analogy. So an SAA is kind of, you go to a restaurant and you order something from the starter, start something from the main and something from the dessert. You can be very clear about what you're getting, but it might not be the best thing. You know, a TPA is going to a restaurant and ordering the tasting menu. You define in advance your dietary requirements and kind of what you do and don't like. And then you just trust, you know, the chef to just give you a meal that you're going to enjoy. And, you know, more often than not, it's always the things on the menu that you really like and never the things you would have thought about ordering. Being able to step into that sort of situation, it is so dependent on trust. You have to trust that that person isn't isn't going to violate your dietary requirements. You have to trust that the chef is really good. And you have to trust that, you know, what they give you is going to be better than what you would have ordered yourself. Um, But in doing so, you really are taking a mindset shift of we don't need to be the decision makers and define these tight parameters for our team in what they go away and just implement for us. You're really putting the control back in the hands of the investment experts who focus on this all of the time. And you're saying that we're just going to be the check and balance and the challenge to what they're doing. It's an interesting point because then you're becoming more efficient and effective in then what decisions are actually being being made. 
you're able to frame all of the decisions um, as it relates to your mission, your goals and your beliefs. And I think this thinks to another really important element of IC effectiveness, which is around that mandate and those parameters for the external or internal teams need to be so clear. And we've seen some situations where ICs have been unhappy with the performance of of the team, but that's because they've set a whole load of kind of constraints on that team without necessarily realizing the implications of those constraints. And but in a TPA world, whilst those constraints need to still be abided to, it's easier to see where they bite and it's easier to see how it affects the ability to add value above a kind of simple, cheap to implement portfolio. I guess without that trust aspect of the IC, the the whole thing breaks down and maybe the process for the IC is to allow certain delegation, see that performance move the way they want and then allow for more and more delegation. Is that the way to think about it? I think so, yes. So, I mean, an IC has to delegate some things. There is no way that an IC can you know, do everything themselves. And, and really there should be applied discipline for why are we retaining decision rights over certain things? You know, do we have a comparative advantage in making a decision here? Or are we holding on to this from hubris? You know, is this just a part of our role that we like? And being really disciplined and kind of challenge yourself around those delegations and around what you've decided to insource and outsource is extremely important for, for ICs because they do only have a finite governance budget. You know, there's only so many hours in the day and or so much time in meetings for them to discuss things. And the best way to expand your governance budget is to either delegate or outsource. What then is the role of the CIO in terms of communicating with the IC to make sure that that relationship is a, is a good one? So I think it's, we talk about the leadership triangle of the IC, the CIO and the CEO. And it's really, really important that that triangle is really strong. So the CIO is, it's an extension of the entire investment team. They are the primary investment recommender and to some extent, depending on delegations, decision maker. And it is absolutely the CIO's role to position these things appropriately at the IC, make sure things are positioned at the right level so that the the IC can understand how this will contribute to a a higher quality portfolio, what the trade-offs and potential risks are in the change that's being proposed and, and, and what other solutions have they explored before reaching this one? You know, you want to almost do some of the heavy lifting for the IC so that they can really understand how you've reached the decision that you have so it's easier for them to, to either challenge or endorse it. I spoke earlier about how the IC has to trust the CIO and the internal team But actually, also the internal team and the CIO has to trust the IC, has to believe that they're not going to shut down really value additive ideas. And the IC should, you know, really promote and challenge and engage the internal team, the CIO in particular, to come up with innovative ideas and to continue to try and make improvements. Okay, not everything might be agreed, 
But, you know, you, you want an IC that wants the best for their team. You've hired really good people um, and kind of you should empower them to reach their full potential. So as we think about it from a, a holistic perspective, you know, if, how do you go about that, I guess, is the question. So I think it's really rallying behind a strategic focus um, and then it will come back to culture. So those are, I would say, the two most important elements. So strategic focus really being around there is complete clarity on what the organization is trying to achieve, that you know what your mission is, uh, you know what your objectives are. So that's, that's the what. But you also understand what your beliefs are, what your constraints are, you know, what you're comfortable with in the portfolio, what you're not comfortable with in the portfolio, and that becomes the how. And everyone should be on the same page with regards to that. Uh, And if they're not, that's where, you know, there's going to be butting of heads between those groups because they all have a different interpretation of what good looks like, what success looks like. And and then the second element that is culture, and and it has to be, you know, a culture that promotes working together effectively and that centers on serving the organization that centers on delivering in line with the the mission or with the organization's purpose and that you all rally behind that. You can almost to some extent leave the individual behind and think about the collective whole. Let's go down the next level and think about what's the role of the asset consultant, the asset manager and the investment team in terms of the best use for their time. So that's a really great question. And really this, this will vary by organization. So I don't think it's kind of easy to say, well, this is exactly what it looks like. Here's a framework. But really it has to be trying to get the best out of them. And part of that will be sort of reminding yourself why you hired them in the first place. And if you have an internal team, an asset consultant and an asset manager, you know, how you engage with those different groups is going to be quite different than if they're all one and the same. But ultimately, it needs to be allowing them to add value for you. And that might seem like I'm dodging the question a little bit, but it kind of needs to to sort of say to them, you know, this is what value means to me. You know, this is how um, how I think about quality and what good outcomes look like. And then trusting them to go away and implement it for you. So you end up in some instances where certain groups can get very in the minutiae, can get very in trying to break down and understand either every aspect of a model or every single number on a page. And actually, like that isn't the value that an IC will add because that's going to burn through time on the agenda and it's going to mean that you you avoid having the more strategic hard-hitting and, and value-added conversations. So I guess my advice to ICs would be, do you really need to be talking about this or can you leave it to your internal team, your asset manager and your asset consultant to sort of work it out amongst the three of them and, and come back to you with thinking around you know, a solution rather than walk you through every single step of the process. One of the final questions I wanted to ask how much of these decisions are around process and structure of these processes as opposed to thinking about financial outcomes? I suppose I'll sort of try and answer it all at once. When I think about risk um, and I think about the primary definition of risk, it's around failure on your mission. 
Now, in order to deliver returns, which is normally very closely linked to mission, you have to take on risk. There, there is no choice, right? We, we don't get returns. We don't kind of get portfolio outcomes unless we take on risk. But it's all about ensuring that we're taking on the right risks at the right time. So, you know, a primary question that ICs have to ask themselves on what is the right level of risk? In order for us to meet our objectives, uh, how, how much risk do we have to take on within the portfolio? And then the second is kind of what is the composition of that risk? And this is highly correlated with beliefs and um, your organizational context. But, you know, you mentioned financial and sort of non-financial risks. And there are certain risks you just don't want exposure to because you don't think they're rewarded. And again, different people will have different opinions on what rewarded and unrewarded risks are. There's those that you deliberately want to take exposure to. And therefore, you have to be very clear around, you know, what is the right level of those risks within the portfolio? And then there are those risks that you only care about once they hit a certain threshold. So, you know, anything above X is too much, but actually where I am below that, you know, I, I'm, I'm not too fussed. And then kind of beyond that, beyond portfolio dimensions, you have a series of risks as they pertain to, you know, you as an organization, not just you as an investor. And these will be elements such as operational risk and reputational risk, et cetera. And ICs need to be across all of this because those risks that, although maybe not instantly linked to portfolios, can still have a really significant impairment on mission. Well, you've given the listeners a lot to think about. So thank you very much for your time today, Rebecca. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.